Well, for so many people, the next two months are their favorite time of the year. The holiday season is filled with them with not only decorations and activity, but anticipation, really a sense of joy and delight that's hard to quantify and difficult to describe, but is a definite sense that's in the air for them as we all march forward to Christmas Day. But could you imagine what the next two months would be like if there was no Christmas Day? If December 25th was just another day of another week of another month on the calendar, then we all recognize that much, if not all, of what we feel or experience or sense over the next two months would dissipate. It would disappear altogether, and for the next two months, all we would feel would be cold, right? Well, Paul has been dealing, I guess you would say, with a similar kind of uh, uh, situation where he is worried, uh, he is laboring to help us to understand how much is lost. If we have a future that has no resurrection, he's been laboring to help us understand what exactly is the cost, what's the price that's paid if somehow we embrace an idea of the life after death, an idea of heaven or whatever it might be that doesn't involve the resurrection. And his basic conclusion came in verse 19 when he said, We are of all people most to be pitied. That's because, as Paul's already spelled out for us, if you eliminate the idea of a physical resurrection, then you eliminate Christ's resurrection. And if you eliminate Christ's resurrection, then death is still reigning. And if death is still reigning, it's because sin is still reigning. And if sin is still reigning, then we have no salvation. Then all of our All of our future hope is gone. All of our current motivation for sacrifice and service is gone. Really, everything that we are as Christians is gone if we eliminate the resurrection. And everything that he's been saying really up to this point in our study of 1 Corinthians 15 has all been oriented looking to the past and what it means if we deny a future resurrection, what it means regarding the resurrection of Christ. And if you deny the resurrection, you lose so much, if in no other reason, because of what you lose in the resurrection of Christ. You lose everything. Well, today, as we come to verse 35 in the middle of this chapter, Paul is still dealing with the same basic concept, but he's shifting gears, not so much looking to the past and looking to what is lost if we lose the resurrection of Christ, but now he's beginning to look forward and he's beginning to think about what is lost if we lose the concept of our own resurrection. And right at the center of it, right at the the apex of it, is what comes at the end of the chapter And that is a sense of motivation, a sense of of yearning and desire that's stirred within us as we think about or as we ought to think about the resurrection. What Paul eventually says all the way at the very end of the chapter, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is in vain. All of that is the fitting conclusion to what Paul has to say regarding the resurrection of our bodies. And his burden in this chapter is that if you somehow embrace an idea of of uh, the future, an idea of salvation, an idea of life beyond the grave that is nothing more than a non-material, spiritual, in that sense, sort of ethereal existence where all that you have to look forward to is some mode of existence where you're floating among the stars and the clouds, that if that's all you have for your hope in the future then there's going to be a necessary disconnect between your life here and now. In other words, Paul's striving to get us to embrace a a, a theology and particularly an eschatology of continuity between our life, our existence, our body in this age and our body in the age to come. I mean, this is the idea of a lot of people. I mean, they really don't know what the afterlife is like, but they have some concept in their mind that whatever it's like, it's nothing like what they experience right now. And so they don't think about the resurrection, and they don't think about a bodily resurrection, and they don't think about a body in which they will do things for the Lord and serve the Lord. They don't think about any kind of correspondence with what they're currently doing as something that will be in any way reproduced in the life to come, because they don't think about the future as a bodily resurrection in a real world. Well, Paul's combating every bit of that. He's combating that because he doesn't want us to lose, among all the other things we lose when we lose the resurrection, he doesn't want us to lose that primary motivating factor that our eschatology is intended to bring. See, if you have an eschatology that doesn't constantly stir you to love and good deeds, if you have an eschatology that doesn't move you or resonate with you in any way to be something different, to do something different, to do something more for the Lord, then you have a defective eschatology. You probably have a defective view of the resurrection. Paul's writing this, by the way, to a whole group of people who had that, a whole group of people who would have denied the resurrection. You remember the Greeks and the the Romans, they struggled mightily with this idea. In fact, when Paul came to present the resurrection in Athens, he was presenting it to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They ridiculed him. They mocked him as a babbler. They, They called him a preacher of strange demons. It says in some translations, strange gods, but the word is demonion there, a strange sort of occultic, bizarre kind of religion that in their mind he was trying to introduce in their cities. Because they fundamentally rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection as having any kind of value. In the Greek mind, and the Roman mind, our bodies were one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest hindrances to our existence. 
Uh, their whole effort or their whole hope in the afterlife was a hope to be free from what they looked at as the fundamentally limiting and evil and bad existence that we were forced in in human bodies. And so they thought that the only way to sort of ascend to something higher was to be free from these bodies. A lot of people today still have the same idea. They still think that somehow the only way to really serve the Lord is to serve Him in some other capacity than to serve Him in a physical body. And so Paul is writing to people who are coming from this kind of background. They're coming from philosophical backgrounds and people who were mocking the resurrection. As a matter of fact, when the early church uh, would martyr early Christians, they would either take their bodies and burn them or they would burn them for the sake of martyrdom. And one of the things they would commonly do in order to mock the idea of the resurrection for early Christians is that they would take their ashes and literally spread them all over the city as a sort of mockery about the idea that God could then somehow come and take those ashes and bring back a body from it. See, they would always bring these sort of philosophical uh, complexities and biological complexities to the question of the resurrection. I mean, at the greatest extent, obviously, is the issue of cannibalism, right? I mean, it's not pleasant to think about, but if you are eaten by someone else, and there's a resurrection, then whose body gets resurrected? I mean, you've been absorbed now into their, the, the nutrients of their body. So you had these kinds of things that were hurled at the Christians all the time, and the same reason that so many Christians in the modern era, or Catholics traditionally, have superstitiously avoided things like cremation, because they can't deal with the philosophical or the biological complexity when it comes to questions of how our body will be raised. And so this is really what this whole section is about. The whole section is really addressed to those people who would bring these kinds of questions that they thought had no legitimate, rational answer to them. When it comes to the resurrection. Essentially these same two questions. That Paul summarizes for us in verse 35. How could a resurrection take place. With the decay of the body the way it is. And then what kind of body would it have. Given what we know. About the way the body decays. How could a resurrection be possible. And what kind of body would it produce. That's the thrust of the whole chapter, the thrust of Paul's argument. And he's going to answer these two questions for us with a long series of contrasts and parallels. A long list of antithetical contrasts that show really the absurdity, not in believing of the resurrection, but the absurdity in not believing in it. When you have, as he'll go on to show us, Evidence all around you of the power of God, of the creativity of God to do just what he has promised. And so what Paul's doing here is confronting the pride of their supposed rationalism with an incredibly rational 
and philosophical and most importantly, biblical argument in defense of the resurrection. Let me begin just by reading this entire section for us. Beginning in verse 35, you hear Paul's questions. Someone, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. You who sow, oh, excuse me, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You can see right there at the beginning in verse 35, Paul states the questions. How is this possible? How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body would they come if their body has already been consumed? with cannibalism or cremation. And he immediately confronts the foolish pride that would question God's ability to raise people from the dead. He says there in verse 36, you foolish person. Not that they're foolish in an intellectual sense. There are, there are a lot of pretty intelligent people who reject God all the time. But in a spiritual sense, they are just as foolish as they could be. Their life is a shambles, their soul is darkened. As the psalmist says, they're saying in their heart, there is no God. And this is the biblical definition of foolishness. A fool in the biblical sense is someone who doesn't have the mind to see the reality of God and the power of God on display in front of them every day. Romans 1 says, you look out on creation And what ought to be obvious to you, as the fingerprints of God all around you, you suppress in unrighteousness, and your foolish heart is darkened. This is what Paul's confronting when he confronts this kind of foolishness. These kinds of people who ought to see the evidence in front of them for everything they're trying to deny. And so he He takes this on by answering these two questions from this basis. First of all, answering the basic question, how could a resurrection be possible? 
How could a resurrection be possible? And then eventually, what kind of body does it produce? You see there in verse 36, he answers this question. Basically, those challenging the power of God to raise people again, he answers it with a series of parallels. And the gist of what he's going to say to us is essentially this, that all God needs to bring about this kind of resurrection, all God needs is a seed. I mean, it's obvious, and he proves his point by a series of analogies from agriculture. And he demonstrates that all around us, life is constantly coming from death. I mean, when a seed goes into the ground, it actually dies. It decomposes, it disintegrates, it ceases to exist any longer as a seed. Verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. It's not a tree. It's not a bush or something else. In agriculture, we understand that you don't get trees by burying trees. I mean, I guess that would work eventually, but that's not why the tree comes, right? That would be enormously inconvenient. We understand in agriculture that the way you get trees and bushes and wheat and all that other stuff is not by burying the plant that is to be, but by burying a seed. And this is what Paul's bringing out to us. We understand this, this uh, uh, process in agriculture. We understand that in spite of the fact that when you bury this little seed, a tree comes from it, we understand that those two things are vastly different, and yet there's a continuity, an organic continuity between those two things. That if you never put the seed in the ground then there would never be a tree. And you could set those two things side by side. And if you weren't a horticulturalist, and you had a series of seeds, and you had a tree sitting beside it, very few of us would ever be able to identify which seed produced that tree simply on the outward appearance. Because although the two are organically connected, they are visibly different in enormous terms. And this is what Paul's bringing out to us here. This continuity between the seed or the, 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 the grain or whatever it is, the kernel, and then the eventual tree or the stalk of wheat that comes from it, is all this massive process that God brings about. Verse 38, God gives it, that is, He gives to this seed a body as He's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And so we understand the analogy here, like, just like what He's saying about these seeds in the resurrection, the decomposition and the disintegration of our original bodies does not rule out their resurrection later on. The form may be different, there may be discontinuity in the final appearance, but there is an essential identity between the two entities. That doesn't necessarily mean then a one-to-one correspondence in the individual particles. In a sense, you could make the same point about your present body, because your body 
that you're living in today is not the same body that you had 10 years ago. Of course, I don't have to tell some of you that. You already know that, right? Or your wife has told you recently. But, but in a real sense, the individual particles of your body are not even the same. The average lifespan of a cell in your body of various types is about four years. There are some, the, the, the scientists believe, deeply embedded in your brain that are with you for the entirety of your lifespan, but the vast majority of the cells in your body are in a constant process of decomposing and being replaced by new cells so that in the course of just a few years, and in some of your organs, in the course of just a few weeks, the entire cell structure of that organ is being replaced with new particles. So you, if you're going to talk about the resurrection of the particles of the body, you're going to have to begin by saying, which one? I mean, because we're, we're in totally new bodies almost every seven years. Millard Erickson, commenting on this, asks the question, he says, what is it that marks each of us as the same individual at birth, as an adult, and in the resurrection? The adult is the same person as the child, despite all the change that goes on within the human body. Similarly, despite the transformation that will occur at the resurrection, we know from Paul that we will still be the same person. So cremation or cannibalism or any of that stuff couldn't stop the Lord from forming whatever He wants to form from whatever seed he chooses to use. And as much as he doesn't need a complete body to raise us up again, he only needs that small portion that provides continuity. Wayne Grudem explains this in his systematic. He says, someone may object that some bodies completely decay, are absorbed into plants, and then eventually into other bodies so that nothing of the first body can be found. But in response, we must simply say that God can keep track of enough of the elements from each body to form a seed from which to form a new body. So while the philosophical, or we would even say the biological complexities are enormous, they're no more elaborate than what takes place around us all the time. As God takes the tiniest little seed and somehow with continuity in a biological sense is bringing about bodies of trees and plants through an organic process that's all under the sovereign hand of His working and His creativity. I mean, the bottom line is that God's powerful enough to do whatever He wants. And why would we struggle with the concept of a resurrection, if we believe in a God already who brought about creation from nothing. I mean, this is what Paul asked King Agrippa in Acts 26. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? I mean, what is such a big deal? He made the world. God's restoration of our bodies is no less... Amazing, but no more difficult to believe. And so we understand that at Christ's return, we will be raised. And our bodies will be brought back to life. 
And yet they will not be totally new creations. There will be some connection, organic connection with our present body so that it isn't looked at as simply a new creation, but it's spoken about properly in the scripture as a resurrection. That's what the scripture affirms everywhere. Romans 8, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through his spirit or Philippians three, Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. Or as Paul goes on to say in verse 51 and 52 of this chapter, that those who are alive and remain at the return of Christ, their bodies are going to be transformed in a moment. And it won't be a totally new creation. There will be a material, organic connection in this resurrection. But for most of us, it will only be a seed that remains. And God will use it to raise us up again. But there will be, because of that, this essential continuity between our present bodies and the body that God is going to raise up Again, it's not to say there won't be differences because God is going to bring enormous differences to this new resurrected body. And that's Paul's point that he begins to address in verses 38 and 39. You remember, he tells us in verse 38 that God gives to each one of these seeds, each kind of seed, its own body. And that, of course, echoes, if you're familiar with the creation account, that echoes Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? When, when we read Genesis 1 and God created all of these things after its own kind. And that's what he's saying here, that God gives each seed its own kind of body. And that Lord sort of leads Paul to expand on this idea then of the discontinuity of all of the various bodies that God creates. He When it comes to plants or trees, or even in verse 9, he gets to animals. All of these things, as he pleases. He says, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Paul is here working his way, as it were, backwards through the creation account, particularly through the creation of animate objects, not just inanimate things like trees. And so he moves from humans in day six or even animals in day six back to birds in day five and even fish in day five. And the point is that God has demonstrated his ability to create so many different kinds of bodies or different kinds, we might even say, of flesh. And so it should Beyond, be beyond question that he would have the ability to create yet another in this resurrected form. God has demonstrated in creation many times over the variety of ways that he can constitute matter. He's demonstrated it time and time again, whether it's animals on the land, birds in the air, fish in the sea, God's sovereign design has proven that he can create different kinds of bodies for different 
kinds of environments and all for his purpose. In verse 40, Paul's thinking continues to drift backward in the creation account, even to day four when he brings up the creation of the stars and the sun and the moon. He says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star in glory. And the point is, of all this is still the same, that God's able to take physical matter and organize it differently in different environments, all for his purposes. Charles Hodge says, quote, his object is simply to show the absurdity of the objection founded on the assumption that the body hereafter must be what it is here. He shows that it may be a body and yet differ as much from what it is now as the light of the sun differs from a piece of clay. I mean, I can't fully explain even myself what the sun is and how it can be embedded with so much energy that it continues to produce fire all these thousands of years. I can't fully explain how God constitutes all this matter in all these different ways, but it's obvious to me that He has the ability to do it. And He can do it from a seed into a tree, or from a single cell into a human being, or from whatever it might be. God can create whole whole planets and whole suns and whole galaxies and processes I don't even fully understand. And yet He's doing it in our midst all the time. So we don't even question God's ability. We have all the evidence we need of all this amazing transformation taking place all the time. Life coming from death. Stars being born from implosions. Trees coming from decaying seeds. God's putting on display His amazing power all the time. But that's not the only objection that Paul has to deal with. Because the objection is also thrown up, well then, if that's the case, well what kind of body would it be then? What kind of body would it be if there's cremation or or cannibalism or whatever it might be? What exactly are we talking about? Are we coming back as fish? Are we going to have scales? Will we be like a tree? What are we talking about when we talk about the resurrection? And that's Paul's second question that he comes to answer here. What kind of body could the resurrection produce? And he continues his answer now specifically drawing all of this application to our bodies in particular. He does it with four contrasts. He says in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Four contrasts that all speak to the differences, the uniqueness of this coming body for us. First of all, he really speaks to the issue of its durability. Its durability. When he says 
In our present fallen states, our body is sown perishable. He says what is raised is imperishable. It is sown, in other words, our body to come is sown in a way that it will never die again. This, of course, is one of the tragic consequences of the fall. That the fall and the introduction of sin into the world brought about death. That's why you hear people objecting to any kind of Darwinism imposed on the Bible in any kind of way because any suggestion of a a, a selection process in evolution implies death that existed before Adam. It implies a sort of eventual evolution to man and woman as we have them in current state. And so that would mean that before sin ever entered the world, death existed. And so to eliminate sin does not eliminate death. But the Bible teaches just the opposite. That death is the result of sin. You remove sin, you remove death, and therefore you have a body that never dies. You have an imperishable body at the resurrection. I mean, we, we understand that even the healthiest person, even the fittest person, is born with a perishable body so that as they get older in this life, they become weaker, they become more subject to disease, various physical problems. And then, of course, when their body dies, the decay sets in in even more rapid fashion. Psalm 103 expresses this. It says that God himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like a grass, like a flower of the field. So he flourishes when the wind passes over it. It is no more. Its place acknowledges it no longer. But what Paul's telling us here is that the resurrection body isn't like that. From the moment that we're created in this life, we are entering into a process of aging and an eventual process of decay. But it's not like that with our future life. It's not like that with our future body. It will be imperishable, indestructible, and undying. Those bodies will know no sickness. They will know no deterioration, no decay, no death. And along with that... Since the aging uh, process, or since aging is a normal process in our corruption, our redeemed bodies will show no signs of aging. They will, in other words, they will represent humanity at its peak. And we assume that it will have all of the characteristics of youthful humanity. Not youthful manhood and womanhood, since the Bible indicates that there will be no gender in these glorified bodies. But there will be among all of those who are resurrected no differentiation of age either. In short, this will be a restoration of the status of Adam and Eve in the garden. No evidence of disease or injury. All will be restored to perfection And our resurrection bodies will show the fulfillment of God's wisdom in creating humankind as He originally intended it. That, by the way, is not the only restoring work that the Lord does. I mean, Christ's work in bringing about restoration, of course, begins by redeeming our spirits. 
It will be fulfilled with the redemption of our bodies. And it will extend even to the redemption of creation and the world, all bringing it back to the original design that God had for the world when He declared it all good. This is what is going to be at the crowning of all that work, the redemption of our bodies. Paul also mentions not only their durability, but he also mentions their purpose, which goes right along with that. He says, our bodies are sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. And that's just simply a reference to the fact that we, as human beings, were originally created to be the image of God. We were created originally to reflect and represent God throughout His creation. But when sin entered the world, that image was tainted by by sin. Our depravity, our fallenness, Our sinfulness means that now sin hinders our efforts to fulfill everything the Lord's called us to be. The sin in our lives and in our hearts, it dulls our mind. It affects our thinking and our reasoning, not to mention our bodies. And so, consequently, we can no longer accomplish the original task that was mandated for us to subdue the earth the way the Lord intended it because we have been marred in that. People often ask me when Jesus sets up his kingdom and we reign together with him in resurrected bodies, what are we going to be doing the whole time? Well, I, I believe that what we're going to be engaged in is a part of that original assignment We're going to be engaged in subduing the earth. We're going to be engaged in bringing about productivity across the earth. We will once again reflect the glory that we're supposed to reflect as God's crowning work of creation. We will once again be appropriate bearers of His image throughout all the world and throughout everything that He's made. And that sort of takes us thirdly to the the third thing that Paul mentions about these bodies, which has to do with its resources. He says, our current body is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. And I believe this has a reference to its physical qualities and physical capacities, not necessarily the spiritual, because Paul talks about that in the next phrase. But what he's telling us here is that our resurrected bodies will demonstrate a power and a resourcefulness that we've never known in this life. Now, a lot of people believe that some of this has been reflected already in the Lord's resurrected body, particularly when you see Him transcending physical boundaries, such as entering rooms with locked doors, apparently moving uh, through uh, physical walls. Or you see Him appearing or disappearing with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so a lot of people assume that this is going to be a part of our capacity. And we don't know whether whether those were... special manifestations for that particular moment and that particular work, or whether or not that's something that reflects what all of us will have. But at the very least, we believe that we will see the complete reversal of the effects of the fall of man on the human body. The body was originally created with power and intelligence that was untainted by the ravages of aging and illness and unmitigated by the effects of the sinful mind. 
meaning that man had a reasoning capacity, a creativity. He had an intellectual capacity that far supersedes anything that we know today. In fact, some theologians have argued that man is getting steadily dumber. I I partly believe them. Our technology doesn't necessarily reflect our intelligence. But this is what Paul is saying, that when the resurrection body comes, it's going to be strengthened in every capacity so that during the kingdom and beyond, we will experience a power in both energy and intelligence, in creativity and activity, in what we might call industry and in ingenuity that will fill God's kingdom with so much wonder at the things which humanity are doing, that we will bring glory to God in a way that has been unparalleled in creation up to this point. Because we will finally reflect His perfect design for humanity so that we can finally fulfill His perfect calling for humanity. And then finally... Paul mentions that our bodies will be renewed in terms of their spirituality. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Don't read that, by the way, and think he's contrasting a material and a non-material, a spiritual versus a material. Paul's using this the same way that he uses natural and spiritual back in chapter 2 when he says the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually appraised, but the spiritual person judges all things. And back there in chapter 2, Paul's not contrasting material and immaterial people. He's talking about people with two different kinds of hearts, people with two different kinds of minds. And what he's saying is that one person has a natural mind and one person has a spiritual mind. And what he's telling us is in in our new bodies, we are going to be finally and completely spiritual people. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you have already tasted some of this. Because what's happened to you, the scripture says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Meaning that whenever you come to know Christ, you are filled from within with a new heart that comes with new ambitions, with new desires, with new yearnings. And whereas before you used to yearn after sin and selfishness, now your heart begins to yearn for the Word of God and for the glory of God. You want to open up and understand the Word. You want to sit under the preaching of the Word. You want to do things that glorify and magnify God. You want to do things that bring joy and pleasure to Him. And all of this is a reflection of your new spiritual nature. Well, the Bible says that whenever the resurrection takes place, that you're going to receive a spiritual body to go with your spiritual heart. So that all of the the yearnings and all the longings and all the passions that you have to serve the Lord now will finally be fulfilled without the hindrances of temptation, without the encumbrances of a corrupted mind, without all of the vestiges of the corruption of our fallen flesh that we deal with every day. We'll receive these bodies 
that will give us the joy and the privilege of finally serving the Lord the way we've longed to serve Him. Of course, the contrast of that is the natural body, the body which right now we have, which of course is born to corruption and born to death, but more importantly, the natural part of us that is born into this world, uh, haters of God, hardened to Him, passionate about our own sin, and not desirous for His glory. This is the natural state in which we're all born. And this is really what Paul is getting at in the rest of this verse whenever he quotes from Genesis again in verse 45. He says, Thus it's written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, or excuse me, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. What he's saying is, if you're born in this world, you're born as a descendant of Adam, and all you have from him is nothing but that natural life that he had to pass down to all of us. But if you're going to be born again, and if you're going to be resurrected, then before you ever taste death, you had better experience the life-giving spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you have any hope of ever having a spiritual body, you had better be a spiritual person. It would be incongruent to take you who have no desire for God, no desire for His Word, no desire for His glory, and to put you in a body and in an environment that is surrounded by God and surrounded by His glory and surrounded by His people. Now, if you haven't experienced the life-giving Spirit of Jesus Christ, then the Bible calls you a natural man and nothing more. And what awaits you is nothing more than a resurrection in a body that isn't spiritual and isn't powerful, a body that is intended only for your punishment. A resurrection to death, as the Scripture calls it, as a natural man and a hater of God, a rejecter of His Word, and one who walks in disobedience. You're resurrected in a different kind of way. And this is the contrast that Paul just brings out in the rest of this chapter as he makes all of these parallels. He says the spiritual, verse 46, it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we born the image of the man of dust, so we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. You know, the scripture says that we were intended to be born into this world as bearers of God's image. And to some extent we are, though in a very marred sense. But Genesis 5.3 says that Adam also had children, quote, in his own likeness, and after his image, end quote. And there are so many people who are born into this life that way only. They are bearing an image only of a natural man. As Paul says, the natural comes first and then the spiritual. They've never experienced the spiritual. 
They've never experienced the new birth. And so they have nothing to look forward to. They may dream of an afterlife where they float among the clouds or whatever it might be. But the Bible says the only way that you're ever going to experience joy, the only way you're ever going to experience fulfillment in the afterlife is if you experience it in a spiritual body. And a spiritual body is only the answer to a spiritual heart. If you're here this morning, this isn't a message just about some biological technicalities of a resurrection. It isn't a message just about eschatology. And it isn't a message about some sensational end-time program. It's a message about you. It's a message about your relationship to God. It's a message about where you stand with Him right now and where you will stand with Him forever. The Bible says that when we die... These bodies may go into the grave, but they will be raised again. As, Je- as, as, as Daniel chapter 12 says, some to everlasting life and some raised again to everlasting torment. Our challenge to you today is that don't leave here having heard everything you've heard about the power of God, not only to change a body, but to change a heart. Don't leave here today. Still just a natural man. Open your heart, your life. Let God take you and make you a spiritual person. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for all of this, for these reminders of what is awaiting us in the days to come. I pray that you would burn it into our hearts and minds. Sear it there. Permanently. As the thing which spurs us on to love and good deeds. Lord, we want to be steadfast. Immovable. Always abounding. In this body. Knowing that it is but a foretaste of all that we will do in the days to come in our resurrected bodies, serving you. So give us that vision. Give us that hope. Give us that longing and that yearning. Give us that motivation. Give us the truth in our minds about the resurrection so that we can live in the light of true rewards awaiting us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.